If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, since we've got uh, winter weather out here, at least Texas style, been kind of thinking a little bit about what winter looked like growing up. I spent my childhood in White Sulphur Springs, Montana. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere out there in the mountains, a little ranching community. And uh, we had weather like this, but you kind of notch it down uh, quite a few degrees and you get a bunch of snow. And I went to a small little brick school and and one of the benefits of going to school in the middle of the mountains is that on occasion, they would just kind of load up us kids, put us in a bus, and we'd go skiing for the day. And pretty cool, right? We'd go to the showdown ski area, which is about 30 miles uh, for where I lived, and we'd go skiing. Now, some of you are like, I would like to go to school like that. It has its benefits, and that was one of them, to go skiing. It also has a few drawbacks, but we won't get into that. So uh, that's actually how I learned to ski, was by actually going on these trips. Now, I'm, I'm no great skier by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, what this looked like, you go to the showdown ski area, is that um, they take you, after they got you fitted for some skis and boots, to what's called the Bunny Hill. You guys ever been there? You know, And what the Bunny Hill is, just a small little gradual hill, and they got a tow rope that's kind of moving, right? And it's circulating there, and, and they got a ski instructor, and so what you do, it's, it's really easy in theory, is you just hold on to the rope, and you can keep your skis going forward, and it's going to pull you up that hill, right? How hard can that be? But I want you to know, when you're a little kid, and, and it's pretty cold out there, so like, my mom like had us all bundled up. We'd wear what's called a snowmobile suit. So that's basically a full body suit. Think of like a hazmat suit just for winter wear, okay? And that's what we were in. So you kind of move around like this and you already got skis and boots on. You can, I mean, you can barely function and you grab onto that rope and the rope is kind of moving like this and everything's probably fine for about the first 30 seconds. But then what happens is people are falling and the rope starts swaying and you're on there like this and you're trying to hold on for dear life. And then the next thing you know, like you hit one of the grooves or like a bump and your skis go this way and all of a sudden, you're down on the ground, maybe one of your gloves comes off, one of the skis falls off, and your face starts functioning like a snowplow. You know, it's like snow just coming in. And it's not, it's not, it's like fluffy stuff. This is hard, like ice stuff, and you're taking in, but you're holding on because you got to get to the top of the hill. And of course, you don't want to embarrass yourself at this point, right? So you're doing everything you can to hold on. People are yelling, let go, let go, right? And maybe you've, you've seen this, and maybe you even have firsthand experience. And you don't have to take a lot of snow in your face more than a few different times to realize you better get this figured out, right? There's, it, skiing looks like a lot of fun, so we need to figure out how to at least get to the top of the bunny hill. And eventually you do, and next thing you know, you're going on slopes, and you learn how to manage the chairlift, and, and after you, you practice a little while, you can even do black diamonds. I mean, you can make progress. And I tell you this because learning how to ski has got some parallels to learning to live with joy in this life. It's going to take desire, practice, perseverance, some coaching. And I think all of us, we really would like to be able to live with joy on a consistent basis. I mean, we sing the songs like joy to the world, but how do you really do that? How does God actually cultivate joy in our lives? And if you're like me, And you don't want to settle for the superficial, but you really would like to have a deep-seated, consistent joy as a pattern and a way of life, then we need to take a close look at one of the most forgotten scenes of the Christmas story. You find it in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. We're going to encounter two 
very unlikely people in the most significant of unlikely circumstances. And they have a lot to teach us about the answer to this question. How does God use the coming of Jesus to cultivate joy in his people? And the first thing uh, we're going to do is take a look at it, beginning in chapter 1, verse 39. We see that God cultivates joy in Jesus when we see God's faithfulness. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed and just kind of give you a little reminder of where we were last week. Luke is an amazing gospel. It points out after 400 years of total silence, God then breaks through and he sends the angel Gabriel and makes an announcement to a priest by the name of Zacharias who's serving in the temple. And this Levitical priest is basically doing what he is trained to do when all of a sudden the angel Gabriel breaks in and God, who has not done any miracles, no prophecies, no word, after 400 years now sends Gabriel to tell him that you, despite the fact that you're old and your wife Elizabeth, who is known as barren, or you're way past the years of having children, you're going to have a child. You're going to name him John and he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. We know him as John the Baptist. And indeed, that's exactly what took place. But then six months later, uh, in another part of Israel, where Zacharias and Elizabeth are in the hill country, somewhere between like Jericho and Jerusalem, kind of in the south part of Israel, in the north part of Israel, an area known as the Galilee of the Gentiles in a small, no-name village, no-nothing village named Nazareth, maybe has several hundred people. As a girl, maybe 12 to 14 years old, a virgin who's engaged, betrothed to a husband, Joseph, all of a sudden, she encounters Gabriel, And Gabriel, this angel, the messenger angel of God, makes this amazing declaration and announcement to Mary that you, you are going to bear and carry the Messiah. The promised one, the one who would redeem humanity, the one who would take away our sins. The promised one, this line, this one from the line of the King of David, this eternal king, you are going to bear. He is to be the son of God. He is the eternal son of God and he is going to be united with humanity. The two natures, the divine nature and the human nature are going to be united in one and it's going to happen in your womb. You remember this? We can see it. Just to review, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. There you see the triunity of God. And he's explaining what's about to happen to Mary. And Mary didn't ask for this. But God is going to give Mary a sign. An attesting miracle to affirm that this like seemingly impossible event an occurrence is going to take place. Notice what he says in verse 36. Gabriel speaks, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, look at verse 38. What a response. Think of this. Let's say she's 13 years old. Look at the depth of spiritual maturity. Look at her heart. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so this event takes place. She is trying to take it all in, but her heart is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. But this, this message about her cousin Elizabeth, who's known as barren, she's way up there in age, 60, 70, maybe 80, we don't know. She is supposedly six months along in a completely unexpected pregnancy. And so Mary comes, she's processing this. She, she basically starts pleading with her parents and asking, I, I'd really like to go see Elizabeth. Now, there's no, like, email. There's no, uh, like, text messaging. Like, oh, hey, by the way, you know, seven years old and I'm on my first pregnancy. You know, there's nothing like that. There's no knowledge of this. But Mary, somehow, through talking with her parents, allows, gets the permission, and is allowed to make the trek. It's about an 80-mile walk, three to four days' journey from Nazareth to somewhere in the hill country where Elizabeth and Zacharias live, somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. In fact, here's a map. I'll show you what that looks like there. Uh, This is where she's going to be heading. And now, don't get the idea like, well, her parents are just like, okay, yeah, you're 13. You're probably old enough to just do your own journey. Okay, that's not... Would you send your 13-year-old on an 80-mile journey? Okay, if you're even thinking about it, let's talk after service. That's a bad idea. So what they would do, though, is there would be people, they'd make treks of journey, groups travel together. You had to because of safety. Not only is it kind of a barren, desolate land, you got thieves and robbers and folks that will do bad things to you, so you travel in groups. There's protection in numbers. And so she would make her journey there. And think of it for Mary. Every step along the way, she's got to be thinking, not only what's happening to me, but is this, does, is this really happening with Elizabeth? And so we see verse 39. Now at that time, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry. You see the haste there. To the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So she makes this three to four day journey. With every step, she's contemplating and thinking. Not only what the angel said and this event that has taken place in her own body, trying to come to terms with, I am carrying the Messiah. But she's also thinking, is Elizabeth really pregnant? And then you could almost just see her. The closer she gets, maybe she can't help but just to run because she has got to see. She just has to know. And then she makes her appearance. You can see her silhouette right there at the doorstep of the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth. She's standing there in the doorway. Elizabeth has no knowledge whatsoever that she's coming. And when Mary speaks Elizabeth's name, Elizabeth turns around and Mary sees. She sees that Elizabeth is six months pregnant. This old woman who has never been able to have a child now has one. Only God could do this. And immediately when she sees, 
Her faith is confirmed. Everything that Gabriel spoke, she had believed, but now it's just taken to a whole new level. Indeed, God is faithful. You know, and that's how God cultivates joy in Jesus. When we see his faithfulness, just like we do with Mary and Elizabeth. And then let me show you something else here as the scene just kind of unravels. You have this God cultivating joy, not only by how we see God's faithfulness, but also then take a look at this next. And that is that when we hear of God's faithfulness, it brings joy to our lives. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have Elizabeth totally shocked. Mary, what are you doing here? And at the moment Elizabeth connects with Mary, six months along, John inside of Elizabeth in her womb all of a sudden leaps. This isn't just the normal kicking that takes place and kind of moving around that that people would be accustomed with and certainly that Elizabeth would have known. All of a sudden, this was something very different, a leap. In fact, perhaps Mary herself even saw this. And I want you to know, this is the first sign of a message that John the Baptist gives. Do you remember it said in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb? And here we have this prophet of the Messiah, the one who's going to announce his way. At the moment, John, even though he's in Elizabeth's womb, is in the presence of Jesus, who's in, the, in Mary's womb. He immediately responds with joy. It's his first announcement, silent though it may be, without words, it is an amazing statement. Now, I want you to know that this is a highly unusual event, but you need to know that when it suits God's purposes, God can even use the activity even inside a mother's womb to preview his plans, because this isn't the first time like something like this had happened. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23, where you see that God actually prophesied the conflict between unborn Jacob and Esau and previewed the future conflict between Israel and the Arabs? You know when that took place? In their mother's womb, a conflict that still is very well alive today. And this was John's ministry to have a ministry of joy announcing the Messiah. Now, we know, we can read the accounts of John the Baptist, it wasn't an easy life. It was a life of oftentimes rejection as he stood up to the face of all sorts of opposition, calling for absolute repentance and a turning away from sin and a trusting of Christ, that the Messiah is coming. And it wasn't met with a lot of popularity, and yet there were a lot of people that were broken over their sin and were truly looking for the Messiah. They believed John's message. But I want you to know, despite all the difficulties and the hardships and running around in some bad clothes and eating bugs for a diet, that he had a ministry of joy. In fact, he refers to it in John chapter 3, verse 29, where he said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Speaking of Jesus, right? But the friend of the bridegroom, that's speaking of him, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. That's why I'm here. 
I am merely a one who is proclaiming that Messiah has come, and I have nothing but sheer joy in doing so. My joy is fulfilled. And so we see here at the very end of verse 41 that Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she is going to make these statements. Now, you need to remember that in the Old Testament, Believers in God were not filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment that they believed, like New Testament believers. You see, when you and I come to a place where we truly are trusting in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, at that very moment, the Spirit of God eternally dwells within you. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God only came at various occasions with various believers to accomplish a specific purpose. And one of the primary purposes of the Spirit of God coming was for people to give a prophetic utterance, to speak God's word, to make utterance of what God was about to do or to explain a situation that was taking place. And that's what we find here. We see Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She has no prior knowledge of Mary coming. She has no understanding. She has no no information whatsoever of what Gabriel said or the events that have transpired why Mary is pregnant and even carrying the Messiah. She has no knowledge of that beforehand. The Spirit of God brings this to her. And notice what happens, verse 42. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She cries out, not only is because she has excitement over her message, but she is doing to emphasize the authority of her message. This isn't just a simple statement that she's making. This isn't just done really quietly. She projects, it is loud, it emphasizes her excitement and the authority of her message. And she makes this statement that you, verse 42, Blessed are you among women. It's a, in Hebrew, it would, could literally be translated, you are the most blessed woman of all. Mary is blessed because she is carrying the Messiah. And then she goes on to say, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the child that you are carrying. Now, in ancient Israel and in Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, In part, a woman's significance was seen by her children. And if their children rose to prominence or greatness, it actually brought a lot of esteem to the woman herself. And what Elizabeth is saying is that you are the absolute most blessed of all women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, your child, because your child is the absolute greatest. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will be the savior of the world. He is God incarnate. He is the one who is going to have the name which is above every other name, a name in which every knee shall bow. It is the name of Jesus. He is the one who is exalted in the heavens. He's the one who is the recipient and the apex of all praise, and he is the Lord of glory. And what Elizabeth is saying is, blessed is your child For it is the child of all. It is the most important. It is the greatest one of all. And then I notice, I want you to notice, look at verse 43. Look at Elizabeth. And she says, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? I I don't want you to miss this. 
Mary is the first believer in the child that she's carrying. But the first person after that is Elizabeth. And notice how does she refer to the child that Mary is coming is carrying? My Lord. In the Gospel of Luke, chapters 1 and 2, you'll find 25 times you'll find the title Lord, speaking of God. And here we have Elizabeth doing just that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she knows that this child is her Lord. Do you see how powerful this is in this first Christmas scene here? My Lord, the mother of my Lord has come. And one other thing that I want you to note here is she has such great joy and delight that how has this happened that that you've come? You've come to me. What a great blessing. But notice what else she says. Verse 44, she explains what has just taken place with John, whom she's carrying. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. That's what Jesus brings. And here he is, though in utero, he is bringing joy to those who believe. And I can't help but to point out that in a day where there are people that just attempt to tell us that, um, well, yeah, so you're pregnant, but whatever is inside you, that's just a bunch of cells. And those cells, we can do whatever we want with them, right? Because after all, it's just a conglomeration of cells. And I know that that's popular and that's in vogue, and, and we think that we can just eliminate those cells, but I want you to know, that those cells have been put together by the handiwork of God himself. And this is a child made in his image. And I want you to know that as we see here, even with John in verse 44, in this leaping, this child has personality and expresses joy. And for Mary, she is hearing all of this. And with every statement that is being made, what Elizabeth is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to know this is infusing her soul with joy and strength and faith. Friends, that's how God brings joy to our life. When we see his faithfulness and we hear of his faithfulness. Every statement that Elizabeth is making, it is just once again just affirming in Mary's heart and soul, indeed, everything that Gabriel has said is true, and I am carrying the Messiah, and it fills her life with joy. And that's how God works. God cultivates joy through the coming of Jesus when we see his faithfulness, when we hear of his faithfulness. But let me point out one other way in which God cultivates joy. And that's when we believe in his faithfulness. Look at Elizabeth's final statement. Look at verse 45. And she says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary is blessed not just because she is carrying the Messiah and a unique privilege that she has. She's blessed because she believes. And it's interesting that Elizabeth states this in the third person, that blessed is she. Not blessed are you, second person. Blessed are she. Because, you see, 
Anyone who believes God and takes him at his word, you're blessed. You are filled with joy. And that's what joy is. Remember what joy is? Joy is that expression that comes with knowing God, his word, and how God works in our world. And that's what is taking place here. And Mary is filled with joy. You see, Mary is not the mother of God. She is not the queen of heaven. Mary is not the co-redemptrix, as somehow she is actually working out salvation for people. Mary is not the one that you pray to, and she's interceding on our behalf. I know that there are millions of people that are confused on that issue. What Mary brings to us and why she is so great and she is so noble is she is a model of faith. She shows us what humility looks like. She shows us what it is to believe, and God is using her as a testimony of his faithfulness. And friends, that's what we need to know here. God brings joy when we see his faithfulness, when we hear of his faithfulness, and when we believe his faithfulness. And friends, don't you and I, don't you want to walk in joy? I'll tell you, this is how it's done. It's by following this pattern, just like we see here with Mary. Remember the statement, God cultivates our joy in Jesus when we focus on his faithfulness. God cultivates our joy in Jesus when we focus on his faithfulness. You know, even in your most difficult days, perhaps even your darkest hours, even when it seems if your life is falling apart, When you focus on God's faithfulness, God brings joy in the midst of difficulty and even your greatest hardship. You find this like in the book of Lamentations. At the heart of this book that speaks of just all of the utter pain in life, he says this, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. No matter what might be going on, do you know where our joy is found? Our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is not certainly not found in government. Our joy is found in Jesus. And so we focus on his faithfulness. If you want to learn how to live with joy... Friends, it's actually a lot harder than even learning how to ski. It's learning how to focus on his faithfulness. And the pattern that we saw here in this text, that has to be our pattern. We, we experience God's joy when we see God's faithfulness. I mean, that's what we see here. Mary saw, and she was blessed. Have you seen how God's been faithful to you? Think about this past week. Can you specifically, intentionally identify how God has been faithful to you? Think of this past year. Now we can all think of all the difficulties and the troubles, but think of how God has been faithful to you, to your family. When we think about God's faithfulness, when we see it, you know what it does? It cultivates joy. We, we experience God's joy when we not only see God's faithfulness, but when we hear of God's faithfulness. When we hear how God has been faithful in the lives of people, you know what that does? 
It cultivates joy. But you know, even when we hear our own voice speaking of God's faithfulness, when we're telling our kids or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or someone in our church about God's faithfulness, when we hear even our own voice speak these things, you know what it does? It cultivates joy. You know, like Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what she's doing? She's speaking of God's mysteries. She's speaking of his goodness. She is affirming Mary. These, this is what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. And when you're speaking these kind of words, you're giving encouragement and affirmation, and you're speaking of God's glory. Friends, what that does is it cultivates joy. So we see God's faithfulness, we hear of God's faithfulness, and when we believe God's faithfulness, in our present time, what it does is it cultivates joy in our lives. And I don't know about you, but sometimes life is difficult, and it's got challenges, right? And, you know, it's pretty easy to just kind of focus on your circumstances. What we want to do, though, is focus on Christ. Focus on him who has conquered all things. And in him, we are more than conquerors. He's our foundation. He's our life. He's our victory. And our hope is fixed upon him. And when we focus on his faithfulness, we experience joy. Let me give you just a simple definition of Christian joy. It is that sense of exaltation and confidence that is rooted in God, his word, and his work in the world. And isn't that what we need? We sing of joy to the world, but friends, God intends for us to live it. So let's do this. As we go through this next week, and as we move through this Christmas season, let's do so not with a superficial joy, but the profound joy that comes by focusing on his faithfulness. Do it in our heart. Do it in our prayers. But let us also speak to it with one another. And when we do, and when we're intentionally identifying how God has been faithful, and when we believe that he will be faithful, that he is going to see us through, that we're more than conquerors in Christ, you know what, friends? When we focus on his faithfulness, we experience his joy. You see, God cultivates our joy in Jesus when we focus on his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord,